Let's go to the book of Galatians this morning. Wes, can you cut the speaker down just a little bit, bud? Galatians chapter 1. I told you that when we finish with the book of Jude, which we did last week, we would be going to start a study in the book of Galatians, and you say, well, I thought you were going to preach a resurrection sermon. It's here. It's going to be right here in Galatians chapter 1, and uh, I am really, really looking forward to this study. I think, I think a good understanding of the truths in Galatians is probably more necessary than just about anything that the church is needing in our day. I really believe that. And so um, uh, we're going to spend quite some time here and really understand it. Uh, just kind of an overview of the book itself, as I like to always do when I'm starting a, a new book. But of course, Galatians was written by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the churches at Galatia that he had helped start. And uh, most likely it was written around 49 A.D. Uh, now what had happened, the occasion for the letter, uh, there was some Judaizers, some Jewish teachers. They had come into these Galatian churches and... Uh, they were teaching a perverted gospel. They were perverting the gospel of grace. And these Judaizers were teaching that people had to keep the Old Testament law in order to become Christian. And even to the point where grown men uh, had to be circumcised as a token of their faithfulness to God. In, in other words, they had to become Jews in order to become Christians. Now listen, you better be very careful about those groups and so-called churches out there that tell you, oh yeah, Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, but our church is the only way to Jesus Christ. Yep. You better be very careful for groups to say, you can be a Christian, but you got to be us to be a Christian. Uh, the Mormons, that, that's their spiel. They'll tell you that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You ask them this question. You look them in the face and ask them this question. So you're telling me that I can get to heaven by grace through faith in Jesus Christ without any works in the church. No good works, no temple work, no sacraments. They'll look at you like a deer in the headlights. That's what you call a liar, liar, pants on fire is what you are. Jehovah's Witness did the same thing. Yeah, Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, but you got to get to Jesus through us. Listen, I'm real nervous about Baptists who say that Baptists are the only ones going to heaven. Now listen, Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. But Baptists ain't the only ones who know Jesus Christ. And so uh, I know it's not prevalent in this part of the country, but uh, there are certain pockets in North Alabama, especially around Tennessee, uh, maybe Georgia. Uh, they call them Baptist briders. And uh, they believe that Baptists are the only ones going to heaven. You had to be baptized into the Baptist church to go to heaven. I thought, wow, we used to do that when I was growing up at the Church of Christ. That's cultic. Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. And by grace, through faith, and His finished work is the only way to Jesus. It's not through a, a group or a baptism or a, a church membership. That's the exact heresy that Paul is dealing with here. They were adding works to grace. Now, we're going to get deeper as we go on, but you, know, you can add works to the, the front part of grace. You say, well, yeah, you know, God gave us an opportunity to work hard enough to save ourselves. But you can add works to the backside of grace too. Oh yeah, you're saved by grace, but you've got to keep yourself saved uh, by your works. Both of those are heresy. Now listen, if you're saved, 
God is going to change you and the Holy Spirit working in and through you, you're going to bear some fruit. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but we don't work in order to be saved or to secure our salvation. We couldn't do it. We can't possibly meet the standard of a ferociously holy God. It's not about being good. It's about being perfect, which means we're all in a lot of trouble. And so that's the issue here. He is defending uh, the gospel of grace. And the Apostle Paul, when you read Galatians, especially the first few chapters, but the Apostle Paul, he was as passionate as you will ever see him when you read him. When he is writing to the Galatians, you could have boiled an egg on his forehead. Boiled an egg on his forehead. <laughs> needed to make sure I got that out right. But Galatians, the letter to Galatians, it's the only time that the Apostle Paul isn't thanking them or being thankful for this church. No, he's going straight into it. Uh, he's, he's passionate about what he said because he's defending the gospel. We ought to be compassionately bold in our defense of the gospel. That's exactly what Paul did. Now, the theme of Galatians is liberty in Christ. And the theme verse is actually Galatians 5 and verse 1. It says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. That is the theme verse of Galatians, our liberty in Jesus Christ. Some have called the book of Galatians the Christian's Declaration of Independence. I like that. Uh, the book of Galatians was one of the biggest catalysts of the Protestant Reformation. In fact, uh, Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Galatians as, is known as one of the linchpins in uh, church literature. It really had an effect on the Reformation at the time. I'm actually reading it. Uh, I made it a point to read it as I go through this study myself, and so uh, it had a lot to do with that. Now, my goal through this study, this is so important, my goal in study is that by the time we're done, we will truly learn to trust and rest in the gospel of grace. You know, I believe it's possible for somebody to be saved from their sin and yet not be saved from the feelings of guilt and shame as if they weren't saved from their sin. I believe that's very possible. I believe they're saved people who really believe the gospel, but they've not trusted in the full application of what it means. They're not resting in it. And so uh, maybe we'll hope to remedy that through this study. Now, if we, if we ever truly get a hold of the gospel of grace, we won't fear death. We won't be devastated by people's negative opinion towards us. We won't be beating ourselves up over things that Christ was already beaten for. And we will have the freedom to serve and worship the Lord from a thankful heart that is resting in the forgiveness of God and not just because we feel obligated to do so or because we feel guilted into doing so. Motivation goes a long way with uh, how we should worship God. God is interested in our motive. He's interested in the reason why we do things. And so with that in mind, with that background, let's read the text this morning. I'll be preaching through the first five verses, but for the sake of context and contrast, I'm going to read the first seven verses. Let's read the Word of God together, Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ, and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia, Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. Thank you, uh, Lord, for this beautiful day you've given us to come worship you. Thank you for all those that have come this morning. Lord, I realize that we all come from different places. We may be uh, at different places in our walk spiritually. Uh, but Lord, I pray that wherever we are, maybe there's somebody that's lost this morning that does not know Jesus Christ in the part of their sin. God, I pray that you would uh, open their eyes, open their heart. God, give them repentance unto the knowledge of the truth. Uh, God, I pray that if there's somebody hurting, maybe they're burdened down with worry, that you would uh, ease their heart, Lord. Uh, God, if there's somebody that's just struggling, whatever the case may be, that you would encourage them today. Well, God, I pray that Christ would be magnified, your word would be preached with power and clarity. And I just pray that you would empty me of sin and self and fill me with your Holy Spirit. We love you, Lord. And it's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. I want to preach on the gospel of grace this morning. The gospel of grace. You see, Paul, he goes into great detail exposing false gospels. But before he does that, he defines and defends the true gospel in these first five verses. And so that's really what I want to look at this morning. So the question I want to deal with this morning is what are the hallmarks? What are the basic hallmarks of the gospel of grace, the true gospel? Understand the word gospel means good news. And so we need to find out what the good news is scripturally, not what we want it to be or what we say it is. What is the gospel according to the scriptures, the Bible, Genesis to Revelation? Well, number one, the first hallmark of the gospel of grace is the authority of the gospel. Look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Uh, Paul, it's really a shame he had to do this. But Paul opens this letter by defending his apostleship. Now, these Judaizers had no doubt taken shots at him because he wasn't one of the original disciples. Now, the word, this is very important that we get this. The word apostle means one who is sent out and specifically by God. Now, in a practical sense, if you're saved today, I guess we could be called apostles with a little a. Uh, I mean, we are sent out. We're supposed to uh, share the gospel of Christ. But the big A apostles, as I like to call them, uh, there was only a handful of them. And they're not around anymore. There's no such thing as a present-day apostle. If, you're, if you pass a church and it says, you know, revival services this week with apostle so-and-so, just keep driving. In fact, drive even faster because there's no such thing. Biblically, there was three qualifications to be an apostle. Number one, they had to be personally commissioned by Christ Jesus. We see this in Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. And Apostle Paul, he, he was commissioned by Christ. Christ uh, personally revealed himself to him with witnesses. He, he shone a great light from heaven. This was after the ascension of Christ. Christ is already seated at the right hand of the Father when this happened. And when Paul is on the road to Damascus to kill Christians, 
The Lord Jesus Christ struck him down and made him a Christian. And he, there was witnesses there, as I said, and, and uh, Saul was greatly changed. Paul was totally different. As, you know, instead of killing Christians, now he was the best-known Christian, so to speak. And uh, instead of killing Christians, he ended up dying for Christ. And what a change there was in his life. And, you know, some of these charismatics claim that Christ revealed himself, uh, himself to them. That's such a lie. It's just not true. We have, we have the text of Scripture. Uh, the second thing they had to have to be an apostle was they, ha- uh, they had to see Christ personally after his resurrection, uh, Acts one twenty two. They also... Uh, would have had to walk with Jesus during his earthly ministry, uh, Paul being the one exception. And so there are no more apostles today. But this is very important that you get this because Paul is appealing to a standard. He is appealing to the writings of the apostles. This is the same standard that Jude appealed to. We just saw this a couple of weeks ago in our Jude study. This is the same standard that Jude appealed to to fight against the false teachers of his day. Jude said in verse 17 of his book, But beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, Paul makes it clear that his authority came from the risen and ascended Savior uh, when he was on the road to Damascus. Christ knocked him off his high horse, gave him a new heart and a new life, and he is still doing the same with sinners today, by the way. Uh, He can only do this because he is alive, having conquered death. And so, uh, before I move to my my next thought, understand that this is still our authority today. The writings of Christ and the apostles, the prophets, Genesis, it's still our authority. There's no continuing revelation. There's no progressive revelation. Uh, That was over with at the end of Revelation. That's why he gave a warning not to add to or take away from that book. Uh, and so understand today that it's, this is still our authority. If we still have apostles today and anything goes, then they can say things that are co- completely contrary to the Word of God and people just shake their head and go with it. That's as occultic as it gets. There's no way to vet that at all. Um, but talking about the resurrection of Christ, Paul comes out in the very first verse and mentions the resurrection of Christ because the resurrection of Christ gives the gospel its power. And those that are raised from the grave of sin are raised by His power and authority. And that's why so many people wish that Jesus was still rotting in the grave because His resurrection means that He's in charge whether they like it or not. Friend, Jesus Christ is God. He's the creator of all things. And you can like it or lump it. He's in charge. People don't want to hear that. You know, if you can't kill somebody, you can't control them. I I hate to tell you that. They killed him one time because he laid down his life in this physical body. It's not going to happen again. It's not going to happen a second time. And think about this for a second. When armies go to war, the ultimate goal is to kill enough of the enemy until they can no longer resist. That's how you win a war. You kill everybody. But, and I say this, understand, be very careful how I say this. You understand I'm giving an analogy here. Even if Christ was an evil dictator, which he's not, he's the perfectly sinless, spotless Lamb of God. But even if he was an evil dictator, he would still control everything. He would still be totally in charge. 
And I thought about this. Imagine if Adolf Hitler, Mao, or Genghis Khan, or somebody like that, imagine if they had power over death. Imagine if you couldn't kill them. Imagine what kind of world we would be living in right now. I'm just thankful for the Lord is not an evil dictator. But He is in charge. And the only people that don't want it to be so are those that love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. The ones that love sin more than they love Him. The ones that want to cast off His restraint and be their own God. The gospel of grace gets His authority from the fact that Christ rose from the dead. And because of this... Believers will also rise from the grave both spiritually and literally by His saving power. And so it comes as no surprise that those who are at war with God wish that He was dead. However, wars aren't won with wishful thinking. He's alive and the tomb is empty. The authority of the gospel comes from Christ's resurrection. And if He was dead, then what we're doing is a waste of time this morning. If he's dead, we have no hope at all. We have nothing to look forward to. Death has the final say. And, you know, honestly, it's amazing to me how people chase after so many things that have no eternal value at all. I mean, people are... are, are ch- and this is what's amazing to me. As divided as humanity is, everybody agrees, except for Christian scientists, everybody agrees that we actually die. Everybody agrees that one day that... We'll have a physical death. Nobody has power over that. I personally don't even know anybody who is older. I think the the oldest person I know is about 97. And so because death has its hold on everybody. The wages of sin is death. And so people knowing that they're going to die, they try to get all they can out of this world. More money, better career, bigger house, newer car. Um, fame, and uh, I mean all the things, all the idols that people chase after, and they do it knowing that one day they're going to die. They do it knowing they can't take any of it with them. You know how much sense that makes? <laughs> That's like uh, uh, on our trip when we leave here. I'm going to try to drive about 12 hours a day, and I'm going to stay in a hotel. That would, that would make about as much sense as me before I get to the hotel, stopping by Lowe's, getting some paint, getting some trim, stopping by Hobby Lobby and getting some decor, and while I'm at that hotel, remodeling the hotel that I'm going to stay in one night. That's about how much sense that would make because this world's not our home. It's about like somebody rearranging the decks, uh, the chairs on the deck of the Titanic. That's That's how much sense that makes. And yet, they're not thinking about eternity. Jesus Christ is the only person who can give us power over death. He is the only person that can make us live in heaven with Him for all eternity. Why would we chase after anything less? Man, is he is just satisfied with too little. But the gospel gets its authority from Christ. I'm not going to give a bunch of apologetics on how we know Christ rose from the dead. I preached on this not long ago going through Mark. I'll just briefly mention that you know the disciples uh, ran away on crucifixion day, but even secular history tells us they died in horrible ways. They died martyrs' deaths after, sometime after the crucifixion. Why did they do that? What changed their mind? Well, they saw the resurrected Christ. Why do we have all these theories today that tries to explain the empty tomb? It's because the tomb was empty. And so, I mean, there's just so many things, but I know 
I mean, I've been to the tomb. I mean, I've, I've been from here to this banner away from where he got up. But I didn't have to go 7,000 miles across the ocean to figure that out. I know because he saved my soul, he changed me, gave me a new heart, gave me new desires. And that, that experience coincides with what's already written in his word. It wasn't just some unvetted experience. The gospel gets his authority from Christ. He's alive, like it or lump it. I'm glad he's alive, aren't you? But the second thing I want you to know about the gospel of grace, and this is really important, uh, not only the authority of the gospel, but the act of the gospel. Look at verse 1 again. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by men, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who is raised from the dead, and all the brethren which are with me under the churches of Galatia, grace be unto you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sin, that he might deliver us from this present evil world, according to the will of God and our Father. Now, we've seen what the authority of the gospel is, but what about the act of the gospel? What does the gospel do? What is its purpose? Now, the purpose is to reconcile us unto God, to reconcile sinners unto God, to give us peace with God. And in verse 3, Paul specifically mentions grace and peace. And I found this interesting. Every single time that Paul mentions grace and peace together, it's always in that order. It's always grace and peace. And the reason is because that's the order it must come in. You can't have peace before the grace of God. You must have grace and then peace. Now, if you don't know the saving grace of God, then you don't know the peace of God. And if you don't know the peace of God, then you don't know the God of peace. The gospel of grace can save us and cleanse us from our sin and put us in a right relationship with God. That is the act. That is what it accomplishes, the, the gospel of grace. Romans 8.1 said, there's uh, therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Romans 5.1 says, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That word justified is a legal term. It kind of gives the, the idea of a courtroom setting in which the judge, not only does he not declare us guilty, but he actually declares us righteous. It's even better than being innocent. He declares us perfectly righteous before a holy God on the basis of the work of Christ on the cross. And because of that, we can have peace with God. Uh, if, somebody, if someone is lost and dead in their trespasses and sin, they're the enemy of God. They're running from God. They're a fugitive from the justice of God. But when we are brought into a right relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, we're at peace with Him. The, the charges are dropped. We're declared righteous because we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And also, too, this can't be missed in this text that we just read. Paul links the Lord Jesus Christ with God the Father, making Him equal with God, and He is equal with God. He's the second person of the Godhead. He is the Son of God, but He's also God the Son. And the truth is that Jesus Christ is the only way to God the Father. He is the only way to be saved. It's not good works. It's not church membership. It's not baptism. It's not some sinner's prayer that you prayed when you were a kid. It is by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. He's the only way to the Father. It's not Jesus plus something or Jesus minus something. It's just Jesus. There is one mediator 
between God and man. The man Christ Jesus, not through a priest or anybody else. He is the priest. 1 Timothy 2.5 tells us he's the only mediator, the only go-between between us and God. Uh, he's the only way. Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh to the Father but by me. There's some young heretic uh, that's getting viral these days on Twitter, and uh, he used this verse the other day to say that uh, Jesus was not claiming to be the only way to God. He was just one of many ways. And you have to, you have to do some kind of mental gymnastics to make that fit. This, listen, this is such a discriminatory statement. This is such a narrow-minded statement. You cannot mistake this. He said, I am the way, not a way. I am the truth. I am the life, and no man cometh to the Father but by me. It doesn't get any more narrow than that. There is no other way. He's the only name under which we can be saved. Acts 4.12 says, Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. In that one sentence, you know what he's saying? Not through Mary. Not through the Mass. Not through Joseph Smith or temple work or sacraments or good works or Buddha or Allah or Mohammed. Nobody else. That would be an extremely arrogant statement to make if it wasn't true. But it is true. So it's just being honest. He is the only way. So if somebody tries to tell you about a gospel that preaches a Christ who isn't God, who didn't die for sin, who didn't rise from the dead, or isn't, uh, wasn't fully God and fully man, they're preaching a false Christ and a false gospel, plain and simple. If someone comes to you with a gospel that adds works uh, as a requirement for salvation, it's a false gospel. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Grace, the, the actual definition of grace, is the unmerited, undeserved favor of God. There's nothing you could ever do to deserve grace. And if you ever did deserve grace it would cease to be grace. That's not what grace is. If someone preaches a gospel that supposedly saves people without changing their heart and life, it's a false gospel. Listen, I know Baptist preachers who think that literally all that somebody has to do is pray a one, two, three, repeat after me style of prayer, and they're saved. They're going, doesn't, doesn't matter if their life changes. Doesn't matter if they go to church. Doesn't matter if they get baptized or show any fruit whatsoever. They called upon the name of the Lord, and so they're saved. Well, I, I read in Matthew 7 where Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom. Uh, I know of a preacher. I'm not making this up. This is how he evangelizes. He goes and he knocks on a person's door, and if somebody comes to the door, he just asks them questions. He said, Do you believe in God? Okay, good. Uh, do you believe that uh, Jesus Christ is his son? Yes. Um, do you believe that he died on the cross for sin? Yes. Do you believe that he rose from the dead on the third day? Yes. He says, well, good, you're a Christian. That, that's his form of evangelism. That's his anti-biblical and anti-gospel nonsense as I've ever heard. I know preachers that say that if you preach repentance, it's a false works gospel. 
I know preachers in a Baptist church that say that as long as they pray the prayer, they're saved. Friend, I read where 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. New creatures are going a new way. They're thinking new thoughts. They're going in a different direction. They've got a different master and a different father. Are we going to be perfect? No. But as Spurgeon said, I may slip and fall, but I'm steadily going uphill. There's going to be a difference. And if somebody preaches a gospel, no difference. It's a false gospel. If there's no fruit, there's no root, and you can take that to the bank. If someone comes preaching a gospel that teaches that Christ came to give us health and wealth and a better life, you better run. It's a false gospel. I remember, and this has been quite a few years ago, but there's one really famous mega church in Alabama. In fact, their main church is in Birmingham, but they have over 17 what they call satellite churches across the state where they may, each church may have their own worship team and their own pastor, but when the preaching comes on, it's at, they're streaming from a screen from the guy that's preaching in Birmingham. And years ago, I heard that this particular church had over 1,500 professions of faith on Easter Sunday morning. And I thought to myself, you know, if that's true, I can rejoice in that. I'm not in competition with anybody. But I said, i got to say this for myself. So I went back and watched the live stream, and just to make sure I didn't miss anything, I watched it twice. And the guy got to the part where he was talking about the gospel. And this was his exact words. He said, Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose on the third day in order to take you from the life that you have now and give you the life that you've always wanted. That was his exact words. No wonder they had 1,500 professions of faith. Who doesn't want to have the life they've always wanted? I remember I couldn't behave myself that day, and I had to say something about it, and it just went viral. Oh, my goodness. i tell you how bad it was, and we'll, we'll move on. <laughs> My mom was working at an assisted living facility at the time, and there was an elderly man there who was a preacher before he retired. And um, he had his phone out. My mom walked in the room. She said, what are you watching? She said, well, my, my daughter sent me, this, um, sent me this tirade this young preacher went on, and he was talking about Church of the Highlands, and, and she goes, that's my son. <laughs> so I didn't know it was going to do that, but I, just, I wasn't even being rude. I was just pointing out the fact that is not the gospel. It's not the gospel. You get mad all you want to. It's not the gospel. Uh, you know, churches like that would vomit. They could not handle a John the Baptist or an Apostle Paul. They could not handle it because they don't have the same message that's in this book. They just don't. Jesus didn't die to give us our best life now. And if my best life is now, I must be on my way to hell. He didn't die, so every day could be a Friday. That's not the gospel, folks. That's a false gospel. The act of the gospel of grace is to make sinners right with a holy God on the basis of Christ's finished work on the cross. The purpose of the cross is to reconcile sinners with a holy God. God the Father slayed His Son on that cross He laid His wrath on Him that we deserve because Christ was wearing our sin in His body on the tree. It wasn't the Romans or the Jews that killed Him. It was God the Father. 
People don't like to hear that either, but they need to go read Isaiah 53 where he said it pleased God to bruise him. He was smitten of God. You can cut those things out of your Bible if you want to. I'm not going to do it. Without the wrath of God, the cross makes no sense at all. The act of the gospel of grace is to save sinners, not in their sin, but from their sin. The gospel is also not that God will love and accept you in your sin. It's that He will save you out of your sin and from the penalty and power of your sin. So we see the act, and not only the act, but the authority. But thirdly and lastly, I want to give you this thought. I want to talk about the aim of the gospel of grace. To what end did Christ go to the cross and raise from the dead? Look at verse 3 again. Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, if the act of the gospel of grace is to save sinners, the aim of the gospel is to glorify God. It's going to throw you for a loop, maybe some of you. But the number one reason for the cross was not sinners. God loves sinners, and aren't you glad for that? Aren't you glad that we love Him because He first loved us? He loves sinners, but that was not the number one reason for the cross. The number one reason for the cross was to bring glory to God. In fact, everything God does is for His glory. He's all about His glory. You say, well, that sounds arrogant. Well, who else could He refer to us? It's just being honest. Worshiping anyone else, finding glory in anyone else is idolatry. We're worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Uh, the Lord said in Isaiah 42 and verse 8, He said, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither praise to any graven images. Now, even the purpose of creation was to glorify God. Psalm 19 and verse 1, The heavens declare the what? The glory of God. And the firmament showeth His handiwork. So even the heavens declare the glory of God. Listen, He didn't. God didn't create Adam because he was lonely. I mean, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they existed in eternity past. They didn't need angels. They, they didn't need man. They didn't need the world. They were perfectly self-sufficient before. I know this is going to be a shocker. God was all right before we got here. <laughs> he didn't create us because He was lonely. He created everything so that He could showcase His glory. The heavens declare the glory of God. And when creation fell, Christ redeemed it through the cross, which was always God's plan A, planned in eternity past. It was never His plan B. No wonder the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 6 and verse 14, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. If someone comes to you with a gospel that somehow glorifies man and his goodness or his abilities, it's a false gospel. <laughs> I reemphasize re what we read in Ephesians. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Uh, John 6 and verse 37 Jesus said, All that the Father gives to me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. John verse one, uh, chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, But as many as received him, 
To them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name, which were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So the main purpose of the cross is to glorify God and what, what glory it was. I mean, what a story. And it's true. You know, there's been things in my, my life, and I'm sure you can say the same thing, that when you heard it, it just almost sounded too good to be true. Uh, you know, my parents were big on the, the whole Santa Claus deal, and when I found out otherwise, it was devastating to me as a kid. Uh, I, I think about, you know, specific things that, that pop up in my mind. I, I think about the doctors that, that promised my pastor so much hope with this chemo, and looking back, they knew he was a dead man walking. They had to do their research. It was too good to be true. But, you know, they, instead of dope dealers, I call them hope dealers. They have, to, they have to give you hope so you do what you want them to do, what they want you to do. Uh, I've, I've had things come up in my life that were just too good to be true. And, you know, I, I find it funny. I must be the luckiest man alive because about once a month I win a free cruise. And, you know, I get that phone call about winning that cruise. And I'm saying, you know, maybe I ought to gamble. I've just got so much good luck, you know. I'm joking, by the way, joking. But um, we all, we, I just hang up because I know there's strings attached. Or you may have gotten that email. It comes around every once in a while where I get this random email where somebody has a rich uncle die and they, they, just, want to, they just want to give the money to somebody. They don't really have family. And, I'm, you know, people that actually buy that, I, I feel sorry for them. I just delete it because I know it's too good to be true. But not this. God the Son really did come to this earth. He really was born of a virgin. He really did live a sinless life and met the just demands of God's law on our behalf. He really did die on a cross for our sin. And He really did rise from the dead three days later. He really is seated at the right hand of the Father right now. He really is returning for His people, His bride. Uh, we really will stand before Him in judgment, and He really will save you from your sin today if you would call upon Him in repentance and faith. He really would do that. He would save you and forgive you and cleanse you. It's, it sounds too good to be true, but it's not. I mean, what a story. What glory. It's almost like Satan had won. The, I wonder what the forces of evil were like in those days after the crucifixion. Day one, day two, day... I wonder what it was like. I mean, they must have been high-fiving. They were, I mean, they were just party. They thought that they had defeated God. <laughs> and then he rose from the dead and ruined everything for them. I mean, you couldn't even write a movie script like that. He died for his enemies. He died for and by his enemies. While we, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What greater love story could possibly be told that the God of the universe, the creator of all things, became a creature himself, died by the hands of his own creatures when he could have, he could have just spoke the word, called thousands of angels to come destroy the world and set him free, but he didn't do that. He died, but yet he rose. Death could not hold him. It's unbelievable, but it's true. In closing, and I'm about done, the gospel of grace has authority because Christ rose from the dead. The gospel of grace cleanses sinners and makes them right with God. The gospel of grace brings glory to God alone. Do you know the grace and forgiveness of God this morning? 
Do you know the God of grace? You can this morning. You call on Him in repentance and faith and trust Christ in His finished work. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 through 4 gives the simplest definition of the the gospel in the whole Bible. It says, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That is the gospel. It's not your good works. You cannot earn the favor of God. You cannot save yourself. God is ferociously holy. He will judge sin. And you're either going to be judged for your own sin, or that's going to be judged on Jesus Christ. You can call Him into repentance and faith today. That's, knowing Him is the greatest thing in my life. There's nothing better than that. To be in a right relationship with God, I mean, really, if you got that down, everything else is just secondary. It really is. I know I have a home in heaven when I die. I know I'm right with God. I know He loves me. I know that I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. There's nothing better than that. If you're living a life of sin, if you don't know Christ, then your, your sin has separated you from God. And that's what the cross remedies, that we can be made right with God and His justice is satisfied. Do you know Him this morning? The Bible says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Would you stand this morning? Heavenly Father, we...